Two quick things. Uh, number one, for those of y'all that are covenant members, I'll add on to Pastor Aaron's comments. Uh, one of the reasons we do the 21-day review is to give the covenant members time to engage with the elders and have dialogue around any feedback or questions related to the things in that uh, the recommendation packet. Uh, we highly value relationship, and we believe that there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from the body. And so just remember, as covenant members, uh, take a look at the packet in the next like couple of days, because if you do have questions uh, or feedback, you want to have enough time in that 21-day window to schedule time with us. Uh, and if you wait until day 20 and try and schedule time, you won't get that opportunity. So jump on that right away. Know that we would welcome any feedback or questions if you have them. And um, we really appreciate and value that feedback from the uh, covenant members. Uh, other thing I want to just encourage you guys to know, uh, the, the notes every week, hopefully y'all know this by now, but every week we take the notes from the sermon and we place them online. Uh, if you go to soundcitybiblechurch.com, under the sermon section, uh, if you click on the sermon of the week, there will actually be a PDF uh, with the notes from the sermon. And I highlight that today because I'm going to go through a ton of verses and I actually did some word studies and pulled um, out of the, the Logos Bible study software I used. Um, I pulled uh, some word studies that it provided and I have like an extra six pages of notes just related to the words that we're going to unpack today. So for any of y'all that are really struck by this, and, and I'll be honest, this is some weighty stuff that we're going to tackle today, uh, stuff that you kind of need to marinate in for a while. So I would highly encourage y'all to pull those notes, and over the next couple of weeks, take time and work through some of those word studies, follow some of the other scriptures, break it down in a little more detail, uh, so that you can have a chance to kind of uh, uh, see um, what this passage has to say to us in more depth. Uh, but just know that those notes are online. It also helps because if you're trying to take notes as we go and you miss something, you can uh, grab those from, from online. With that, let me uh, jump in, and we will read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for it by people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Let me pray. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be gracious to open our hearts to really understand the weight of the words that you have put before us today. I pray by your grace you'd speak through me and that you would stir the hearts of this body so that we would learn what it looks like to truly live by faith in a way that would honor you and bring glory to your name. In your name we pray, amen. Um, I wanted to, to start off with some photos from a recent family camping trip, and this ties in. Um, uh, just a week or so ago, I took my family up to Deception Pass. Uh, if y'all have never been there, it's a beautiful spot on the north end of Whidbey Island. Uh, and we just had a lot of fun. Uh, after the push of the move and everything, we wanted a little time as a family to kind of relax and catch our breath. Uh, my son Gideon especially has a blast playing on the beach and uh, rummaging around through all the driftwood and things. Uh, he actually, on this trip, learned why I'm always telling him not to climb on the driftwood piles that people have stacked up when uh, one of the logs fell and smacked him in the forehead. Um, so it's all right, it, 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 he recovered quickly. Um, Denver, this was the first time we took Denver camping, and we were so excited because it's a fun outing for us. Um, don't be fooled by that smile. That was, I think, the only smile in the whole trip. Uh, the bulk of the time, this was his disposition. Um, he let us know he was not ready for camping yet. Uh, bless his heart, at 18 months, everything was freaking him out. Um, he was just wrecked by everything. Uh, he'd be walking and he'd fall and his hands would be in the dirt and he would just come unhinged. Uh, and just experience after experience was just a little overwhelming for the little guy. And to give grace, I mean, he's 18 months, that's fairly age appropriate, it's not a surprise. Um, 
and so I had grace for him, but there was a part of me that kept wanting to say, you know, Denver, it's not that big of a deal, buddy. Uh, you know, just in the grand scheme of life, like, you have dirty hands, it's okay. Um, the challenge is he doesn't quite have the perspective yet to understand that these things that seem so earth-shattering uh, aren't quite as earth-shattering when you put them in the bigger perspective of life. But as I was reflecting on that, I had to uh, admit that in my own life, I do this all the time, right? I get upset about things, frustrated, and when I step back, I think about the things that are frustrating or disappointing or that, that are just making me come unhinged, and I realized if I have my sight set on the right perspective and I think about God's eternal plans, those things aren't quite so earth-shattering as they feel in the moment. And what we'll see as we dive into today's passage is this is going to be a passage that really challenges us to evaluate um, our perspective on things. Um, a quote from C.S. Lewis, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slums because he can't imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. Um, as I said, this passage today is going to be one that's going to really challenge us to elevate our sights. Um, I would propose that all of us need to do a serious inventory from time to time to really ask if we truly have our hope placed in the right things. Now, before we dive into the passage, I want to set the stage and just as a reminder where we're at in Hebrews and what the overarching context of Hebrew is. Uh, if we remember, Hebrews was written to the early Jewish Christians, and they were facing a ton of persecution because of their faith. Uh, last week, Pastor Aaron unpacked Hebrews, uh, kind of the last part of chapter 10, uh, and some of the verses said, After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. Uh, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And we see that the author was trying to challenge and encourage the Christians in the midst of all of the persecution, encouraging them to press on and to continue spreading the good news, uh, to continue spreading the message of God's redeeming grace to the world around them, no matter what the cost. The author was trying to produce people who were free from the enslaving notions of, of comfort. He wanted to produce people who would risk it all for the cause of the gospel. He was encouraging them to remember where to find their confidence and hope so that they would continue to live a bold life like they had been living. He wanted to spur them on. He wanted them to live boldly as Christians who were living out a genuine faith. Now, as we think about um, the overarching structure of Hebrews, uh, we've got a total of 13 chapters. In the last 10 chapters, the author has made great effort to really unpack all that God has done for us through Jesus. Um, I went through and pulled a number of references, and it was too long to include, so I've shortened it down. But just to give you an idea of some of the things that, that he's unpacked for us that Jesus has done, um, we see that God spoke through his Son. We see that God created the world through his Son. We see that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. And these are all references pulled from the first ten chapters. Um, we see that Jesus suffered death so that by God's grace uh, we wouldn't have to. We see that Jesus was made like man and became a merciful and faithful high priest, making propitiation for the sins of the people. He suffered when he was tempted, and he's able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus invites us to enter into his rest. Uh, Jesus is our high priest who's passed through the heavens. Jesus is able to save those who draw near since, we, um, since he always lives making intercession for us. 
Jesus established a new covenant, making the old covenant obsolete. Christ entered into heaven itself to appear before God on our behalf. Uh, Jesus offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin and then sat down at the right hand of God. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, and Jesus promised and is faithful. Now, there were over 40 things that I pulled in just a quick run through of the last 10 chapters, and you might want to take some time in your own studies and go back through the last 10 chapters and, and really look for all the things that are promised to us that either Jesus has done or will do. Um, but it's a great reminder for us that when it comes to salvation, we didn't bring anything to the table. Um, God has brought everything to the table through Jesus, and he gives it freely to anyone who believes. So these last 10 chapters unpacked all of that as a great reminder to us, and now the author's going to turn the corner, and he's going to show us how all of that manifests itself in the life of a believer who's living by faith. We'll see that because of what Jesus has done, those that are his will be marked by a life that's lived by faith, hope, and love. We'll look at faith in chapter 11, hope in chapter 12, and love in chapter 13. So that kind of sets the overarching framework. And what I love about how Scripture unpacks things um, is it always, anytime there's a charge to us as believers, how we're called to live, it's always predicated by what God has already done. So when we're called to action, it's based on the work that God has done. As we see 10 chapters of what God's done, three chapters of how we're called to live that out. You tracking with me? So uh, let's kind of start to look at faith then in these chapters uh, 11, verses 1 through 3. Uh, there's a great, great quote from Matt Chandler. He said, It seems that faith is the spark that ignites grace in the souls of men and women. That until there's faith, grace is an abstract idea. But when faith takes root in the heart, grace is awakened and comes alive in the souls of men and women. Um, I think that's an important thing to note, that faith is something that really ignites our understanding of grace. Uh, it's also important, before we dive into these verses in particular, uh, faith is a gift. Uh, if we look at a couple of different passages, um, in a letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This isn't your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So we see in that the gift of God's grace and of faith is a gift from God. Uh, in a letter to the Corinthian church, Paul says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? He was basically saying, hey, don't get cocky. Everything you have, your grace, the gift of faith you have, it's all a gift from God. Recognize that and humbly thank God for the gift that he's given you of faith. So having set the stage with that, that, that faith is a gift that's based on all that God's done, and now it's called, um, calling us into how to live that out. Now let's look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So let's take this kind of word for word, and here's where we'll get into some of the word study. Uh, first, we'll look at assurance. Now, a few weeks ago, Pastor Shane was preaching, and we are so blessed to have people like Aaron and Shane that have such a deep understanding of God's word, that have been through seminary, that know Greek and Hebrew, and I was super impressed with Shane. He rolled out some Greek and Hebrew, and I thought, man, I want to do something like that, but, but I don't know Greek and Hebrew. I haven't been to seminary. Uh, but I do know wingdings, and so if you look at assurance in wingdings, <laughs> it looks like Greek or Hebrew, so I figured maybe that was close enough. <laughs> if you, from a layman's study, uh, I just went to different translations, and I looked at how different translations have, have interpreted this word, and it gives you a little bit of a broader context for what this means. Uh, in addition to wingdings, uh, it's translated as assurance or substance or confidence 
or the realization, uh, thinking about those words, um, substance, confidence, realization, there's a great uh, quote or two from some comment- commentaries I wanted to share. Uh, one says, viewed from this perspective, faith is something objective that in the here and now gives to the things hoped for a substantial reality which will unfold in God's appointed time. Faith lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, though as yet unseen. Another quote from that same commentary, uh, the notion of hope in the future salvation has run like a scarlet thread throughout Hebrews. It's ultimately related to the divine promises and to the inheritance that are yet to be attained. They're the things hoped for and include the world to come, the Sabbath rest, the internal inheritance, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the unshakable kingdom. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, think of that long list that I went through in Ephesians 1 through 10 of all the things that God's done. Uh, these are all things that Jesus has done or promises to do, and that should give us great assurance or, or great substance, great confidence. Like it gives shape to our faith. It's not just an empty hoping, but there's something substantial about our hope because it's built on these promises of God. Are you tracking with me? So let's look at hope. The very idea of hope uh, begins with dissatisfaction. Um, you have to be dissatisfied with your current state before you're going to have hope. For something else. Uh, think about it this way. Uh, if you are hoping for a pay raise at work, it's because you're not fully content with what you're currently getting paid. You want to get paid more. Um, perhaps you're married and, and you're recognizing there's room to grow in your marriage, so you're hoping for a better marriage. Uh, there might be some good elements about it, but you know it can be better, so you're hoping for something more. Uh, perhaps you hope to get healthier. Um, you're recognizing that you don't have all the elements of health in your life, and you're hoping that life will, you'll have more energy or, or whatever healthier would look like for you. Uh, conversely, thinking about it on the, the more positive side, um, when you're not hoping for more, like if you've already had double, triple portions of a Linda Freiberg dessert, you are fully satisfied. You don't need any more. You are stuffed at the moment. Uh, you might be hoping for a couch to go lay down on and recover with, but, but you're fully satisfied. So when you're satisfied, there's not a hope or a longing for more Whereas when you're dissatisfied, you hope for more. Now, I want to interject real quickly before we go further. Uh, what we're not talking about is, is the type of hope where if you just wish hard enough, you'll make it come into being. Um, we see this distortion played out in a couple ways in the church sometimes. Uh, number one would be through uh, prosperity theology. You know, if you just believe enough, God will bless you with all sorts of wealth or riches. And if you're struggling, it's because you don't have enough faith. God wants to grow your faith. I would say that's a, a, a gross distortion of the gospel. Uh, similarly, um, sometimes, uh, especially in a charismatic circles, if it's unhealthy uh, in the way they're communicating, they'll say, well, God would heal you if you just believe enough. Like, God's going to heal everyone as long as they have enough faith. So if you're not getting healed, it's your problem. You don't have enough faith. I would say that's also, um, unfortunately, a gross distortion. Uh, God will heal some people at times. God doesn't heal people at other times. Um, and it's not... Uh, purely predicated on whether or not you have enough faith. Uh, and I've seen that do a lot of damage with friends of mine that have come out of those churches and, and really been affected and, and been caused to be ashamed because they were told they didn't have enough faith. Um, so we're not talking about those distortions of faith as some just hoping things into being. What we are talking about is hope as a holy discontent. Um, hope is a longing to see God's will and to see glory brought to God's name. Romans 5, 2, it says, Through him we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. 
That's our hope, God's glory. Um, as we think about God's glory, one of the ways he displays his glory is through his redeeming work, reconciling us, making the opportunity for us to be restored back into right relationship with him. That's one of the great displays of his glory. Uh, Titus 1-2, it says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Uh, and, and as we think about that, and we think about Scripture, we see countless references through Scripture that point to the idea that our hope can only be found in God. Uh, to hit some other verses, uh, Psalms 27, it says, Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Uh, in Romans 4, 20 and 21, when speaking about Jesus, Paul says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. He was saying, man, Jesus had great faith because he knew God is faithful. And as we think about it, if God is sovereign and God is control and he's faithful, we can find great trust in that. Um, my dad would always say, don't worry about the mule going blind as long as I got the line. And some of y'all might have to think about that a while, but if... <laughs> If you think about it, it doesn't really matter what happens. If the person in control has the line, you know it's all going to be okay. And it was Dad's way of saying, it doesn't matter how bad things get. I'm in control. I'm going to take care of you guys. And that was kind of his way to assure us. He was in control. Um, and, and if we think about it, how much more we should have faith in God because he's sovereign. He's in control and he's faithful. So we don't have to worry about how awry things seem to go. In the grand scheme of things, it's still well within his control. Some other verses to highlight that God is our hope. Psalms 33, 17 and 18, it says, the war, uh, excuse me, the war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its great might, it can't rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. So don't find your trust in the war horses. It should be the hope of God's steadfast love. Psalms 42, 5, why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalms 46, 1, God is our refuge and our strength, our very present help in trouble. Psalm 71, 5, for you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, for my youth. Psalms 118 says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Um, I love how Paul speaks about hope in a letter to the Ephesians. Uh, he says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I don't cease to give thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers, uh, praying that God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened so that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the work of his great might? Uh, this is a verse that has rich language that's challenging us to raise our sights, to get our sights off of ourselves, and to recognize God's bigger picture. Um, it's like he was saying, hey, no matter how good or how bad things are in the here and now, there is so much more to come, something so much better in eternity with the Lord. Um, is quoted earlier from C.S. Lewis, it would seem that uh, our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. We are far too easily pleased. And that's what Paul's getting at here. Hey, raise your sights. God has something bigger. Don't be so wrapped up in your life. Um, I'm going to use an illustration for this. Um, I'm going to, a little audience participation here. Hopefully this won't get too knotted up. So think of this rope here. 
I'm going to, do you mind if I have, let's see, I'm going to, man, that's a lot of rope. If you can kind of stretch this tight, do you mind helping me with that? We'll figure out somewhere in here. All right, so picture this is eternity past on one end. Man, that is a long rope. I had the choice of 50 or 100, and I thought, well, it's always better to have too much than too little. So eternity, yeah, I'm a Texan, right? Eternity past, eternity future. This is your life. Uh, not not the, the big end, but the little end on the tip of the pin. In contrast to eternity, if you were to interject yourself there and you thought that little speck at the tip of the pin, that represents your life and mine. Now, as we think about that, uh, I don't mean to diminish the reality or the weight of the life we are living, right? Like, God has given value to each one of us. So I don't mean this to diminish the value of the lives God's created, but in the grand scheme of eternity with God, the speck that is our life is so small. So as you think about this and you think about how huge eternity is and that God calls us to an eternity with him, I want you to recognize that we shouldn't be content to live only for the speck that is our lives. We should raise our sights and we should be awed at the eternal glory and greatness of God and we should be compelled to find hope in his incredible grace that calls us to live with him, worshiping him for eternity that eternity should have far more weight in our lives than the things that tend to consume us and have us look at just this moment. Does that make sense? All right, so if you'll let go, Kami, if you'll roll that up. Thank you so much. Um, if I need to help there, I know that's kind of a massive rope. Man, that was, <laughs> might have to cut that in between services. Thank you. Um, so hopefully that gives a little bit of a context. Elevating our sights, that's what I mean. Thinking about the bigger picture, not getting so absorbed in the speck that is our life. Uh, I would pray like Paul that we would all have the eyes of our heart enlightened, that we would know what's the hope to which he's called us and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance. Uh, if y'all read the At a Glance this past week, which is our weekly communication, has all sorts of news and updates. Uh, if you read that, you would have seen that I included a quote from Matt Chandler, uh, and he had kind of gone on a rant. I know no one would do this in Seattle, but in Dallas, they actually have stores for the dogs with like designer jackets and boots, and he was ranting about the money people spend on designer equipment for their dogs while people around the world are suffering. And, and that rant kind of ended in this. Uh, he said, what I just find hard to chew on is how many men and women are content living the life of a dog, thinking, you know, I'm going to eat a little bit, going to sleep a little bit, going to amuse myself, and, and I'm just going to hope that I die good. Like, like, I just get old, and maybe somebody takes me to the doctor and gives me a shot, and I just go to sleep forever. What blows my mind even more than us spending an obscene amount of cash on dogs is how many of us are perfectly content chasing our, til- our tail. Discontent is the fundamental element of faith because it screams out from our guts that there's something more. It's what Romans 8 calls a groaning, and and there will never be faith without that, which means grace never gets activated. Um, As he was preaching on this, uh, or talking about this, it was actually in relation to this passage in Hebrews. Um, And he was saying it's God's grace that stirs a holy discontent and leaves us realizing there has to be something more than this life we're experiencing Uh, Equally so, and I found this really convicting, he challenged us, uh, or challenged in his sermon, that it could be seen as God's wrath to let us be wealthy, healthy, and comfortable. Uh, Because if we're wealthy, healthy, and comfortable, we're content, and we never experience the discontent that would help us raise our sights and see our desperate need for the Lord. 
Uh, for many of you, your story of how Jesus saved you and redeemed you was birthed out of deep discontent. You were suffering, you were broken, you were hurting, and you were uh, desperate for a Savior to rescue you. Uh, some of you perhaps are like me. Um, you were saved at a young age, um, and, and so young you really don't even remember, uh, but yet God's grace has been shown in his life, and one of the ways that God's shown his grace in my life is allowing enough suffering and challenge over the years to allow me to appreciate just how great his grace is. If it weren't for the suffering and challenging I'd had, I wouldn't have realized how much he has blessed me with the grace of my life. Um, some of you here may be perfectly content, and you don't really see a need for a savior, um, if you're in that boat, man, I have to be honest, my heart breaks for you. And I would say that knowingly or unknowingly, you have settled for a shadow of what God actually has purposed you for. So I would encourage you to pray that God might show you enough of a taste of his glory that it would create this healthy discontent, this holy discontent. Um, per perhaps you're somebody who is discontent, uh, but you're not longing for God. What you're really wanting is for him to just make your life better so you can be happy again. Uh, and if you're in that boat, I just want to caution you. God is not a genie. Uh, his existence is not so you can rub on his lamp and he'll come grant you three wishes to make you happy again. Uh, his purposes are far greater and it's for his glory to be displayed, not just to run around making sure you're happy. So if you're just hoping God will make your life happy again, I would challenge that you're missing the bigger picture of what God is uh, really about the type of discontent we're talking about should fill us with an understanding that even the best of life isn't as satisfying as it is when we're walking in God's presence. Because God's the only place we can find firm footing for our hope, uh, because hope is what provides assurance or the substance that our faith stands on, Paul writes to the Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Another commentator, he said, For man without faith, hope is cumbered with uncertainty, cramped by unpredictability. Uh, it's retarded by the fears as well as spurred by the longings of human subjectivity. For the man of faith, however, hope is something sure and substanti substantial precisely because it is founded on the objective reality of the immutable promises of God who cannot lie goes back to those words for assurance. It's substantial. It gives substance to what we're hoping for. Um, so once again, Ephesians, uh, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now let's go on to the rest of that, that first verse. It's also the conviction of things not seen. Um, another commentary said, some realities are unseen because they belong to the spiritual realm, some because they lie in the future, uh, when that realm will break into earthly sphere. In either case, the person of faith lives out a bold confidence in God's greater realities. Think about the rope. Your little speck is, is real, but, but man, that's just a speck compared to the greater realities that God has put in motion and is working out. Um, what the author is getting at here is that the hope we have, it gives deep conviction, but it's based on things we can't see, right? It's based on the work that Jesus has done, or it's based on the work God promises he will do, uh, so it's based on things that are unseen, but it's still a substantial hope because it's the promises of God. Hebrews 11:2 it says, for by it the people of old received their commendation. Now, this means that the characters of renown throughout the Old Testament that we see that God has redeemed and restored, um, it's, it's a case that they were saved by their faith. 
I think there's a, a common distortion that people think they were saved because they did all the right things and they didn't do the wrong things. They set themselves apart by their action. Uh, but the truth is, it wasn't what they did that earned them God's favor. It was their faith in what God did uh, that showed God's grace in their lives. So the work was God's work. They just had a great faith in what God was doing, and that faith is what marked them apart. Uh, their faith was shown, it was made manifest by their choice to trust God and worship Him by walking in obedience and dependence, but that was an outcome of the work God had done and their faith in that work God was doing. Uh, the upcoming verses, uh, the rest of chapter 11, is going to give a lot of examples of people who had faith and, and how they walked out that faith. Um, so we'll dive into that in the weeks to come, but hopefully that sets the stage to know that, that it was a work of God that they had faith in that was what marked them apart. And then in Hebrews 11.3, it says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Um, among other things, this is a bit of a nod to the debate around whether or not there was an intelligent designer behind all that we experience. Uh, if you look at the biblical narrative from beginning to end, we see uh, John 1, 1 through 3, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. All things were made through him, uh, the word being Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.18, it says, For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And then in Romans 10.17, it says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now, kind of stitching these together, um, if we can recognize Jesus in his grace brings life out of death, right? Like our souls are spiritually dead. It says the wages of sin are death, so we are dead in our sins, and the Holy Spirit breathes life into us through the work of Jesus. And so if he can bring life from death in our own life, it makes it easy for us to look at all of eternity and to say, I get it. If he can bring life from death in my own life, God could have, in, in his unseen, he could have brought life from nothing and created all that we know. So as substantial as the world is, right? Like we can feel it, touch it, it seems to be reality. There is something so much more real and substantial in the power of the work of the Lord who created everything even though he's unseen. Uh, in light of that, I would say it takes just as much faith for an atheist to believe that everything came from nothing as it does for us to believe that it came from the working of the power of God. Uh, interestingly, uh, I'll share a testimony here. There's a woman in our church. Uh, she's been coming for about a year. When she started coming a year ago, uh, she would have classified herself as an agnostic. Uh, prior to that, she would have declared herself, uh, she did declare herself an atheist, but she kind of hit the point of agnosticism saying, I don't know, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. She started coming. Uh, when she started coming here, she had a lot of questions. It was about a year ago, um, and she started attending a community group, and she was deeply engaged in the conversations they would have and the study of God's Word. She was also doing a lot of research to challenge her previous notions and to really wrestle through whether or not there was weight to, to this idea of uh, everything's just a matter of chance. Um, interestingly, uh, along that journey, uh, she came to a point where she really believed in an intelligent designer, and she actually went to lunch with me and a friend of mine who was not a believer, uh, wasn't a Christian at the time, uh, still is not a, a professing Christian, uh, and she was actually arguing for the case of an intelligent designer, even though she still was not a Christian herself. Um, and we had this great lunch, and she was just deeply entrenched in the study. And I asked her, uh, because she recently gave her life to Jesus, and Jesus and His grace redeemed and restored her, and, and I asked, like, what was going on at that point, you know, uh, before you got saved a year ago and whatnot as you're wrestling through this? And, and she said, I felt that part of my heart was longing to really truly believe, but I couldn't bring my heart or my head or, or, or something to believe. 
And after what changed, um, it was actually the very last Sunday in our old building when she uh, accepted Jesus. And asked her what changed, and she said, I felt that something was going on. There was a stirring in my heart, and I had to respond to it. Um, she shared that the tipping point wasn't more reason. It wasn't more knowledge. Uh, it was something that was birthed within my heart, is what she said. Um, like the quote I mentioned earlier, it seems that faith is the spark that ignites grace in the souls of men and women, that until there's faith, grace is an abstract idea, but when faith takes root in the heart, grace is awakened and comes alive in the souls of men and women. That seemed to be just a perfect picture of what God had done in her life. Uh, as I also shared in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, by grace you've been saved through faith, and that's not your doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. And, and it's really awesome because this woman has such a, a precious humility about her faith. She recognized God stirred something within her. It wasn't her doing. It wasn't all of her research. She is very humble about her faith. Um, as I look at it, it was really God's grace to give her faith, and that faith was kind of a, a spark that ignited a whole chain reaction because she could look back on all that she had learned with her mind, and now she could see that the things that, that um, made her believe there was an intelligent creator, they weren't just empty facts. Suddenly, they had substance to her. She saw it with new eyes. Now she could understand with a heart-level conviction, understanding that the things she sees, the, wor the world and all that's in it, uh, were crafted by the unseen, by the power of God, and she sees that and believes that now. Uh, it's become a conviction, a deep-rooted belief in the things she can't see, uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and the hope that uh, she'll be raised again uh, for eternity with him. And, and those things have become a deep conviction for her now, even though they're unseen. All of that has given her a tremendous sense of hope and a strong assurance that God is able to do what he's promised, that he is able to restore her, that he has adopted her as his daughter, and that he does have an eternity plan for her to be with him in heaven. That hope, that assurance is the foundation for her faith. It gives her faith substance, the assurance. Um, but it was all ignited by faith, which was a gift of the Lord. Uh, remember, um, she said, I felt part of my heart was longing to really truly believe, but I couldn't bring my own heart or my head or, or something to believe. And so as we were talking, one of the final comments she said, she said, you know, talking about this stirring within her, she said, that couldn't have come from me. She recognizes the hand of God was at work in her life. And when God lit that spark of faith within her, it unlocked the door for her to begin to understand, and it gave weight to those convictions. It became the substance of her hope, of her faith. So what? What does that mean for all of us that are here today? Well, first of all, for those of y'all that are here that are not Christians, you, know, you don't yet believe, I would want to encourage you that perhaps like the woman I was talking about, uh, part of your heart is longing to really truly believe, but you just you can't bring yourself to believe it. Uh, I would um, hope that you won't become discouraged because you don't quite see it yet or you don't quite have that belief yet. Um, like Psalms 34, 8, it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. My hope is that you would begin to taste everything you can, hoping and praying that God would stir that faith within you. Uh, my invitation to you would be get involved. Um, just like this woman, she wasn't a believer, and yet she jumped into one of the community groups, and she was wrestling with God's word, and she was getting tastes everywhere she could, studying and enjoying time in his word and unpacking things with other believers. So she was getting tastes and began to see that the Lord is good. And as you do that, read and study his word, pray that God would enlighten your heart my encouragement to you would pray that God would give you faith. For those of y'all that are believers, um, 
you might be sitting there thinking, well, I do believe, I do have faith, but man, I feel like my faith is very weak. I am all too often consumed with the speck that's my life instead of raising my sights to the bigger picture of God, and it's hard to believe in his promises sometimes. If that's you, you're not alone. Uh, we see in Mark 9:24 as one example of many. There was a father asking Jesus, he said, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He was begging the Lord to heal his son who was uh, sick and possessed, and um, Jesus said, um, all things are possible for one who believes, and immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Uh, there's this interesting tension. It's like, I believe, but man, it's hard for me to believe it could be that amazing, that you could be that powerful. Help my unbelief, Lord. And, and if you're in that boat, as many of us are, uh, and I think all of us are at that point at some point or another, um, pray that God would increase your faith. Um, one way that God helps to increase our faith is to encourage us through fellowship with other believers. Romans 1, 11 and 12 uh, says, For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift of strength to you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So I think it's very appropriate that we pray God would encourage your faith. Pray that God would encourage your faith. Now, as I say this, uh, don't try to make God a liar. Um, if you're going to pray that God would encourage your faith, but you are not in any sort of relational context with other believers who can encourage you with their faith, then you're either sure enough believing God's a God of miracles, or you're, you're really putting him to the test, and that's unfair. If you're praying this, and you're recognizing that you need God to help encourage your faith, uh, and you're not involved, you need to get involved. Uh, begin to build relationships with people in the church. Uh, begin to build relationships with other Christians who can encourage you with their faith, uh, whether that's organically or whether that's uh, joining one of the community groups to provide a structure to help with that. In some way or another, get involved with others who can spur you on, who can encourage you, and so your faith can be an encouragement to them as well. Um, finally, there's some verses uh, that I think challenge us to really ponder. Um, what is your life going to be about? I think that's something we all need to really consider. What is our life really going to be about? Are you going to settle for chasing empty pleasures like a well-cultured dog? Or are you going to elevate your sights beyond the fleeting pleasures of this world and hold fast to the hope God's given you and live boldly for His glory? Uh, it's really an important question because faith always um, has an outworking uh, that's not directed towards ourselves. Faith isn't something that we're given solely to satisfy ourselves. It's always got an outward-facing element. Uh, it, it compels us to live boldly. It compels us to, to walk in obedience to God, proclaiming His glory to others. So, are you going to settle for comfort? Or are you going to stand upon God's promises and assurance and use that as a foundation to help you to live boldly for God's glory? Before you answer that, remember the context of these verses, right? Going back to the last 10 chapters in Hebrews and the context it was written in, um, the author was reminding people who were struggling with great persecution because they were proclaiming the word of God boldly. Uh, his goal was to challenge and encourage the Christians in the midst of persecution to press on and to continue spreading the gospel despite the cost that it was having on them personally. His goal was to produce people who would risk it all to take the gospel to others. So, just in case you're, you're wrestling with this and you're wanting to hold on to your comforts and dismiss this question that I'm asking on the basis that maybe I'm just finding one verse and taking it out of context, uh, I will tell you this idea that pouring yourself out for God's glory is written throughout Scripture. Here's a couple of references uh, just as a sampling. First Timothy 4.10, it says, For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope 
set on the living God, who is a savior of all people, especially those who believe. We toil and strive because we're setting our hope on the living God. We want others to know him. 2 Corinthians 3.12 says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. As I think about that, I think how many times I hear people nervously saying, pray, I've, I've known my neighbor for 10 years and, and, and I think I might have a chance to share the gospel. They're going through some hard things and I think how timid we are often about sharing our faith. And I get it, it's a judgment on me too. I believe judgment-free zone here. I've been in the same boat. I'm often in the same boat. It can be nerve-wracking. Um, but man, <laughs> we're so wrapped up in our comforts, we've lost perspective. Um, we should live boldly because of the hope we have. James 2, 4 through, uh, 14 through 26 talks about faith and works. Uh, just to read the starting of that passage. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can his faith save him? This idea, faith always has an outworking. It's not just something that serves ourselves to give us confidence. That confidence calls us to live out boldly for God's glory. Because of the assurance we have in God's promises, the, the things that we hope for, and because those are true, the faith of a believer is one that always manifests itself by action. Uh, we'll see more of that in the weeks to come as we look at all of the examples of the Old Testament uh, heroes of faith, so to speak. Um, but for now, kind of our final call to action, I would say, is pray that God would activate your faith. With that, we're going to transition to a time of response. Um, we're going to spend some time worshiping and, and praising God for the glory that he's poured out and his redeeming grace and work in our lives. Uh, the first way we'll respond is through giving. So if the financial stewards will come forward, and, uh, or actually they're going to come from the back and pass the buckets forward. Uh, if you're at the end of a row and it comes to you and you're like in one of these odd places, just kind of pass it down to the folks in front of you and we'll kind of help circulate those buckets. Uh, just know if you're visiting with us, you are not expected to give. This is a time for the people that call this church home to respond as, a, as an act of worship, thanking God for all that he's blessed us with and entrusted us with. Uh, you're welcome to give, but just know it's not an expectation in any way that you give. Uh, while they're passing those buckets, I want to share some discussion questions, some things for you to think about. Uh, number one, uh, work back through Hebrews and recount all of the things that God has done through Jesus that should give us hope. Uh, it's a great exercise to think and to claim and to, and to really process all that God's done. Number two, uh, where do you struggle to have faith or to believe in the promises of God for your life? Really be honest about that. Where do you struggle to believe the promises of God? Number three, how do these truths provide a substance or an assurance for your hope? And then number four, in what specific ways is God calling you to live out your faith more boldly? And then some prayer points. Um, as I've already shared in the sermon, pray that God would give you faith. Pray that God would increase your faith. And then pray that God would encourage your faith. And lastly, pray that God would activate your faith. We want to be a people who live out of faith that shows God's redeeming work um, in action in our lives. Um, once they're done collecting, collecting the offering, um, we'll also have a time of communion. Um, as they pass that around, I'll ask you to hold it, and we'll wait till everyone has theirs, and then we'll pray, and we'll celebrate communion together. Um, as we celebrate communion, we want to look at a passage to remind us why we take the Lord's table. And I'll preface it with this. When we take communion, uh, this is something for those that profess faith in, 
in, in Jesus, that are walking as Christians. Uh, if you're not a believer, I would ask you to just to abstain, let it pass by. Um, or uh, if you feel God tugging at your heart, this is also an invitation to you to put your trust in Jesus, to trust him as your Lord and Savior, and for the first time, take communion as your first act of worship uh, to the Lord Jesus who has saved and redeemed you. So the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians 11, uh, 23 through 28. Uh, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup, and after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and you drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord uh, in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Um, so we'll take some time uh, here as they're still passing and uh, pray. Uh, following prayer, um, I'd encourage you to just take time and really ponder these things. As the band begins to worship and sing, you can actually feel free and take a moment and still sit, ponder, pray, and when you're ready, uh, you'll be able to take communion. And then once you're done, we'd invite you to stand and to worship with us. Uh, so with that, I'm going to pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your words today, um, reminding us uh, and encouraging us what it looks like to live by faith. I pray, Lord, that we would be challenged to raise our sights, that we would not be so absorbed with the speck of, of existence that is our life, and that we would always think in the broader perspective of the life that you've given us and the glory that you are working out through eternity, the fact that you have invited us to live with you for eternity. I pray that we would be so wrapped up in that hope that we would uh, have lives marked by a substantial faith that would cause us to live boldly, constantly proclaiming your glory. I pray as we take communion, we would recognize the grace that was poured out on us as Jesus allowed his body to be broken and his blood shed uh, so that we could be redeemed and restored, so that that sacrifice could put us back in a right relationship with you. I pray that as we take this communion, it would remind us and that we'd be truly grateful. In your name we pray, amen.